Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Growth Show where we talk about all components of business and how to utilize them for exponential growth. My name is Ethan Cassiotis. I'm a serial entrepreneur, international speaker, results strategist, business coach, mentor and consultant. After over 14 years of being in business and running multiple companies, I felt called to start this show. I see many people struggling to start or grow a business, which is why I want to help entrepreneurs achieve success in business quicker, more effectively and sustainably. Today, I have an awesome guest. He is a real estate artist, six times international best-selling author in five genres, philanthro-capitalist, ultra-marathoner, actor, and aspirational speaker. He is a modern-day renaissance man who sees opportunities and creates markets where none existed before. Welcome, Frank McKinney, and thank you for being on my show. Ethan, I've done a bunch of interviews, as you know, but I don't think I've ever been interviewed from Australia. So I'm super excited. We're, what, we're 16 hours apart? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So this is good. I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a pre-launch book tour for my seventh book. And when Pamela told me that you wanted to interview me, I was really honored. I've heard about your program from, from other people. Uh, so I'm ready to jump right in and try to give your viewers and your guests as much value as I possibly can. Yeah, awesome. Love it, Frank. And thank you so much for taking some time out of your tour. And I'm sure we're going to give a lot of awesome value for, for all the listeners today. So, um, you know, you're a very successful entrepreneur. So for those people who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself by telling us a bit more about you and your journey. Sure. Again, Frank McKinney, I, um, I'm just a corn-fed country boy from Indiana. Uh, well, I'm a corn-fed country man now, right? I'm a little older than when I was uh, 18 years old. I left Indiana with a $50 bill and a one-way plane ticket to just get out of just get out of Indiana. You know, there's a few times in life I'm going to use my mouse here as an example of a of an eraser that you get to turn around and erase the chalkboard of life and start over. I needed to start over. I had been in four high schools in four years. I had been in juvenile detention halls, which is in the United States, a place you go before you're 18. If you're arrested, you don't go to jail, you go to juvenile detention. So I had a troubled youth and I really needed a fresh start. So I hopped on a plane with that $50 bill, landed in Florida, went to Florida because it was warmer than Indiana. And I started to pursue my professional highest calling, which we'll talk about here in a minute, ultimately led to my spiritual highest calling. I, I, in, in the United States, we have welfare programs that I don't believe in the welfare mentality. I don't believe in the entitlement mentality. I believe in working hard for what you, what you have and what you've earned. And so I, I got a job digging sand traps, sand traps on a golf course by hand, you know, like putting a shovel in the ground and digging holes in the ground as a maintenance worker. But I was around affluence, Ethan. I was around people who could afford to play golf all day long, it seemed like. Here I was out there struggling in the sun and they're playing golf. It was very, um, you know, it was almost a voyeuristic kind of lifestyle where I was looking at that lifestyle of the rich and famous and, and I wanted it. But how as a maintenance worker with no education, you know, no network, certainly no money, no friends. Uh, so I, I, I became a tennis instructor actually after that. Um, I went from four bucks an hour to 50 bucks an hour. So I was making good money. I had a Ferrari by the time I was 21, but there was a limit to how much money I was going to make as a tennis instructor. And again, when I was teaching tennis, Ethan, I was teaching tennis to affluent people that could afford to pay me $50 an hour to hit a better forehand or a better backhand. 
uh, and they had that lifestyle that I wanted. I was very young. I was only in my early 20s, very impressionable. And they, and they lived in multi-million dollar houses. They drove the fancy, you know, Mercedes and, and Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And they had a beautiful wife or beautiful husband. And they had the kids and the yacht. And like, I wanted that. You know, I was, I, at that point, when we're young, we're very materialistic, almost consumeristic. And, and so I asked the question on the tennis court, you know, of my students, how did you get here? And over a two-year span of doing that, at asking my tennis students how they got to live this lifestyle that I wanted, I earned my, what I refer to as my, my master's in entrepreneurship and ultimately my PhD uh, in real estate because the answer I got more often than not from these very successful affluent people living in these very beautiful homes was they made their fortune in real estate. And so I, while I was still teaching tennis, I bought my first fixer-upper, a first flip house, as they say here in the United States. I flipped it and I made $7,000. Now this is back in the late 80s. Uh, and since then, uh, I have just recently completed my final masterpiece. Uh, so so for, for five years, Ethan, I didn't do a house worth more than $100,000. But in the early 90s, I jumped to the direct oceanfront in Palm Beach County, building homes on speculation. So don't build them for a buyer. I wouldn't build them for you and your wife. I build them like an artist would paint a painting and hope to somebody would come by and, and buy it. And I had done, I just did my 44th house on the ocean uh, with an average selling price of $14.5 million over that 30, well, 28 year span. Uh, and I just finished the, the final one, and that's what I kind of rode off into the sunset on my uh, unicorn, so to, see, so to speak, to pursue other things in life. So that's my backstory. At least that's my professional backstory. Yeah, no, that, that's an amazing story. And I think it really shows that, um, you know, your persistence and, and resilience of, you know, coming from nothing, but that willingness to learn um, from, from those people. And then um, I think when we, we listen to our intuition when we listen to you know what opportunities come our way you know we pursue them then we really step into that and, and you definitely did that and you know you, you've got the runs on the board um so to speak with what you've um you know achieved over the last um you know 28 years or so um plus of your life which is amazing so like, like you said i know that you started with a, a fifty thousand dollar fixer upper property on your thing and you've climbed all the way to building like a 50 million dollar oceanfront mansion which is amazing so you know, what challenges did you face as you grew your project size on, on that journey? I think the biggest challenge that people face in business today, and, and it's actually good timing that we're doing this interview because I, I am in the middle of writing the seventh book. And what I've learned over, I'm not dead yet, but if I, if I do a post-mortem of the first 30 years of my career, the biggest challenge that, that I face and that, that most entrepreneurs face is that of taking a risk. You know, when people, when you consider that, as you just said, I did a $50 million house without a buyer. In other words, I, I, me, the bank and the IRS and my wife, like I don't have partners. That, that is it. Me, the bank who where I borrow money from, the IRS who I have to pay taxes to, and my wife who I'm married to. Those are my partners. And when you do houses, I mean, that was, a, that was one house, but the average selling price of $14 million without a buyer in mind, the perception is you're a huge risk taker and, and it is a big risk, but I'm an advocate for exercising your risk tolerance like a muscle. So my muscle, actually my real muscle is actually kind of small right now, but most wrist muscles start quite small. 
And, and Ethan, when I came off that tennis court where I was earning a, over $100,000 U.S. a year as a 21-year-old, that's back in the late 80s. That's big money. Gave all that up to start flipping crack houses, you know, first-time homebuyer houses. That was a tremendous risk. And there was a lot of fear associated with taking a risk. And what I want to get across to your, to your guests is fear is associated with the thought of taking a risk, not the actual taking of the risk. Once you take the risk, the fear most often, at least for me, is replaced with excitement and joy and enthusiasm with the pursuit. And so, you know, besides the obvious answer I could give you, which is, you know, that the biggest challenge was getting financing and finding the deals and learning the business. That's a given, right? I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. The fear of giving up what was very successful for me that I was making, this is, you know, before paying taxes, that's a lot of money in the late 80s. That was, I think, as I look back, I'm, I'm most proud of myself and would encourage other people to take that risk. You know, get fear is associated, if, if, if fear is associated with a thought of taking a risk, what is the risk associated with? And usually in life, Nathan, it's a big change or a big challenge. It could be relational. It could be financial. It could be spiritual. It could be dietary. Big change, big challenge, equal sign, fear, and then most people don't pursue it. So the biggest risk for me really was in, in succumbing to that fear and saying, you know what, $100,000 a year, I got a Ferrari in my garage at 22 years old, I might as well just stay a tennis pro the rest of my life. Well, I'm glad I didn't because there's a limit to how much money I could make on that tennis court. And had I not exercised my risk tolerance like a muscle, because eventually, Ethan, it will become stronger and it will be able to withstand greater pressure. So the, the, the deals got bigger, but my, my fear uh, never increased. Like I, I still am afraid every day of my life when I take these risks. Believe me, I'm not, nobody should be immune to fear. It's a, it's a God-given sensation that's there for a reason. But what we should avoid is the stagnation and the, and the running in the opposite direction of that sensation of fear associated with the thought, just the thought of taking a risk. Follow through with the risk, the fear will go away until you take the next risk. Yeah, no, there, there's so many amazing points there, Frank. And yeah, I completely agree with you about fear. Fear is the, the biggest thing that holds a lot of people back. And, um, and I think the, the biggest thing is um, some people, you know, come with fear is like, I don't know what to do next or what the risk is. And I think you've got to look at whatever the situation is and say, okay, um, is it a numbers thing, right? Do I do the numbers and, and work out what, what the, the tolerance is there? Or is it potentially that I don't have the knowledge sometimes as well? And then sometimes you have to go, okay, if I don't have the knowledge. Either I need to learn the knowledge of what I need to do so I can make that decision. Or um, is there somebody that I can bring in that can also help that as well. So did you have, you know, have anything like that as well? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, that it, that it does kind of go in that order. You need knowledge before you get the funding, right? You don't go out there blindly get the funding unless you believe you have at least the base of a, ba a good baseline of knowledge. And so, you know, like for people in real estate now, if you're just getting started out, associating yourself with real estate investment clubs, they're all over the United States. I'm sure they're, they're you know, in, in um, Australia, that, that I, 
I'm, I'm really kind of an introvert, believe it or not. And I would go to these meetings, um, actually before they even the real estate investment clubs, I would go to the courthouse where most of the foreclosure sales were taking place in the United States. I would sit on the steps and watch other people bid on foreclosed properties just to learn. And to, to, to and then, then I would imagine, well, what if I would have bought that place and then I'd get the address and I'd drive out there and I'd see it. What would I think I need to do to it? you know, go and follow somebody through Home Depot and, and or Lowe's and find out exactly, you know, how much I might have to put into this place. So, but but I will warn you that, or, or warn your viewers that don't overstudy it. See, we have a we have a, a, a an issue right now, especially with the availability of what I call the screens, right? So here's a screen, we're on a screen, and there's a TV screen on the wall over there. There are all sorts of screens that really act as what, as screens to taking action. Put the screens multiple, put them down, don't over spreadsheet, don't over Google, don't overthink your, your, your process or, your, or the, the level of knowledge you think you have to have. I mean, there's a saying, this is ready, fire, aim, right? I, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. But for me, I, I don't want to be, because I didn't have a formal education, you know, I'd rather go out and trial and then make the error, try, make the error, build my knowledge that way. Um, because I didn't make money on every deal. I think I've lost some money on, on certain deals by taking too big a risk or going to the wrong neighborhood. But believe me, it was, a, it was they were all good lessons that resulted in me going from a $50,000 fixer-upper to a $50 million mansion in that time span that we talked about. Yeah, no, that, that's, they're really awesome points as well for people because it sort of comes down to the, the left brain, right brain thing where the left brain analytical people are good at the numbers but they may overanalyze things as well um, in those areas. Whereas um, some of the right brain people may not look at the numbers enough when they maybe need to, but they're a little bit more um, on the pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I need to make a really important point on that because I just wrote this chapter in my new book. Uh, I, I want to dispel the notion right now, if you're watching this or listening to this, that you are either a right brain, meaning a creative or a left brain, meaning analytical. I was taught that from a very early age that you are either one or the other. And so growing up, I had a grandfather who was a, worked at a bank. I had a father who worked at a bank. I had a mother who was a teacher. So you can imagine which side of the brain I was supposed to have been trained to have. I was an analytic. I didn't have a creative bone in my body because why? Not because I was born that way. It's because I was conditioned to think that I was a spreadsheeter that I was an, anal an, an analyst, I was into statistics, which by the way, I, I like that. But Nathan, when I got into business, and, and for those of you who are watching, go to frank-mckinney, just frank-mckinney.com, look at some of the houses I designed. I mean, I had a team of designers, I didn't do it all myself, but look at the, the artistry. That's why I'm called a real estate artist. It's not my term, it's a term that the USA Today and Oprah Winfrey gave me, and among other, New York Times, Washington Post. So. Please don't buy into the fact that you are either a creative or an analytic. What I had to do, Ethan, and it took me, oh, almost a decade, a little less than a decade, more than five years, I had to train the right brain because I wanted to be artistic. I, 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 I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. Uh, I can't sculpt. I'm starting to learn how to paint. So I, I had that side turned off at childhood. I think it's a travesty. 
So as you're, if, you, if you have children, do not train them to believe that they are one or the other. They might be more proficient, a little bit more proficient in one or the other. That's your cue to train them in the other. Now, as a successful businessman who, who designs you know, $15 million houses and has, like you mentioned in the, in the intro, I've written six books in five genres, soon to be a seventh book in a sixth genre toggle back and forth between right brain and left brain. The most successful people in the world that you look up to, I don't know whoever they are, uh, Elon Musk or I mean, you pick a Steve Jobs or you know, there's a lot of wonderful, Sarah Blakely that started Spanx. They are capable of toggling between the two. It should be like taking a big monkey off your back. What I'm saying to you right now, my partner's the creative, I'm the numbers person. Not so. We're, if you are the numbers person, engage the right brain. Learn, go to museums. Start studying art. Start studying philosophy. You will open up the synapses associated with creativity so you can toggle back and forth. And no, I don't consider myself right brain, left brain, analytic or creative. I am I'm right down the middle when I choose to. I, like a switch, I can turn on the right side and turn it off and turn on the left side and turn it on. Yeah, no, that's really amazing points. And I completely agree with you, actually, Frank. A lot of people talk between both. And I think, you know, with me growing up, my, my parents are both teachers and I was brought up more of the, the left brain way, right, of, of studying and things like that, even though I didn't finish school in the end because I, I didn't um, enjoy it, so to speak. But they also, I was quite fortunate that they actually took me to certain things that were outside of that as well. So learning a musical instrument, I learned piano. I played sports. I was going to learning about astronomy and photography and a few other cool little things when I was younger as well, even about computers. Um, even though I was put down more of the left brain path, there were still those tendencies. And now today, um, like you said, I think I have a well-rounded aspect that I look at both. Like a lot of people see me as a left brainer because I'm very good at numbers, which is sort of like my dad. He's got that math, science, physics sort of area to him, right? Of, of that area. Um, that I'm very good at numbers. However, um, you know, some of the big people in the world, like I'm good at speaking and all this stuff, you know, which is more of a right brain type thing. And, um, you know, JT thinks I'm a right brainer, right? With, with what I do. So, and I, I adapt to the situation, like you're saying, I think that's the biggest thing is like, when do I need to put which hat on? And what, once we able to, to meld those two together, we're actually a full business person. We don't have to rely on anybody else to help us to make decisions we can actually, um, you know, really um, amplify, you know, our results, basically. You know, it's almost like the visual I'd, I'd like to give is, is if you take the, the raw material of gold uh, and, and before it's melted down and turned into a gold bar, if you're able to put together the right brain and left brain nearly simultaneously, you know, a lot of people think, well, you got to lead with the business decision and then you get into the creative side that will set your product or service apart. You can't really do that. Sometimes you're gonna say, well, maybe I lead with the creativity and the ingenuity associated with a product and service, and then I put it through the business filter. But that has to be done in millisecond, like simultaneously, as that gold is poured into the mold, that, that, that's, how, that's how you gotta think about the funneling of those two thoughts. And the, and, the, and the quicker you can toggle back and forth, and we're talking about milliseconds, if not simultaneously, that's more successful, I think, is somebody like you and people listening will be. Yeah, no, that, that's so awesome. Um, and, you know, like anything, I think it's, 
it's training ourselves, opening ourselves up to that and, and really, um, you know, putting ourselves in those situations that we can build that muscle. Like everything is like, whether it's risk, whether it's using both sides of the brain and everything like that. So, you know, if we talk about, um, you know, how important, you know, in your eyes, um, you know, is having the right mindset, you know, to succeed in business? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the basis of my seventh book. It's a mindset book. And uh, I, I'm realizing that, you know, at, at the intro, like you, you know, no education and no funding and, and no support and no friends and no, none of this other stuff. What I got right, I have a saying, get the mind right and the money will follow. Is, is an ultra marathoner, which is somebody who runs races in excess of, you know, 50 miles, 100 miles, get the mind right and the miles will follow. And, and, and so, you know, it, it's... It's, it's not something that comes naturally. I just think as human beings, if you, if you, you know, there's almost 8 billion of us on the, on the face of the planet now, you really have to spend a tremendous amount of time, you know, meditating on mindset. Uh, and I'm not talking about in the lotus position and sitting there and, you know, meditating with your, I, I do meditate, of course, but uh, that, that mindset um, really Without, I, I'm not allowed to, to talk about the title and you know the, anything else on the book, but but and right yet, other than it is a mindset book. But it, but but the whole process that I want to take people through is I created my own reality. I started creating my own reality 30 years ago. Uh, I wanted to be a real estate artist. I wanted to run the a, a very large charity in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. I wanted to be able to run 100-mile races when I wasn't trained to do that. I wanted to be a best-selling author, even though I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the education to do it. What, what, the takeaway for now, and again, this is all being this new book of mine, is just please understand as human beings, as a species, we aren't wired to stay motivated. Motivation washes off and goes down the drain with the soap tonight. Assuming you take a shower tonight, if I motivated you, I failed, because you feel all good and pumped up, but when you take the shower, like the soap, it's gonna go down the drain. That's the same with everything that you, that you try to get motivated to do. Notice, you can't stay, I can't stay motivated. It doesn't last. Read a motivational quote on Facebook or Instagram. How long does that last? seconds until you move on to something else it doesn't stick with you so don't beat yourself up over the fact that you can't stay motivated it'll get better hang with me inspiration name i think that's it like frank you really inspired me today you you know what ethan ethan's program the business growth show really inspired me today well guess what inspiration lasts about as long as a bad sunburn so if you've ever been to the beach and you've stayed out in the sun too long, you're looking at about two weeks. You know, your, your skin's red and then it hurts and then you can't take a shower and then it eventually peels and it finally gets back to normal. Well, if you read an inspirational book or watch an inspirational movie, two weeks, you'll be inspired, a couple weeks. If I did a decent job today, you, you'll remember some of the things I said for a couple weeks, like a bad sunburn, but eventually it dissipates and wears off. Motivation washes off, inspiration wears off like a sunburn, but it's aspiration, Ethan. Aspiration will alter your DNA. It will, it will forever change your life and the lives of those you love. So 
That's the question I pose to you today that you should look in the mirror tonight. What do you aspire to do? What do you aspire to? What legacy do you aspire to leave behind? Who do you aspire to emulate? Like, who do you look up to? These aspirational questions will help you more than help you. It will get your mindset right. And you can quit beating yourself up, up over the fact that you can't stay motivated or inspired. Motivation and inspiration are good for two things. Well, one primary thing. Motivation and inspiration, they ignite aspiration. So I'll give you a simple example. Uh, the, the 100 mile races I run. Am I motivated every morning to get up and train? No. Am I inspired to go out and beat my best time on a 100 mile race? Not every time. But once I, 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 I've set that aspirational goal of finishing a 100 mile race in, in front of me, it's sacred. It, 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 it is there. I might not be motivated every day to do it, but I will ultimately act upon that aspirational thought. A Fabergé egg is one of the most valuable pieces of jewelry. Look it up if you don't know what it is, or if there's only like a half dozen of them in the world. To me, aspirations go in a Fabergé box. The secret box, I've only aspired to a handful of things in my life, and, and that's what I want you to focus on. Who do I aspire to emulate? What legacy do I aspire to leave behind? What do I aspire to be doing one year from now? That will change your mindset. Buying a motivational tape or reading a, you know, an inspirational book, it's not going to do it until you translate that to aspiration. Yeah, no, they're really amazing um, points there, Frank. I really love that. And, you know, the way I sort of translate to that self as well, it's definitely like looking up to those people. And it's um, in, in a simple sense as well is understanding your why. Like, why are you doing this? And, um, you know, what, what I find is, um, you know, and this links to the legacy part of it, where, um, you know, a lot of the time we don't do as much if we just do it for ourselves, right? We want to um, do it for the people that are close to us or the legacy and everything like that. Like, is it for, you know, your family? Is it for your partner? Is it for your kids? Is it for the people, the lives, and you know, that you touch, um, that you, you know, you transform or, or change, whatever that is in terms of your products and services and, and, and everything like that. Like, that's really, um, you know, what gets you up in the morning and should feed that fire within yourself. And that way, um, you know, uh, I had like, I think three and a half hours sleep last night. Right. And I've got up early to do this, right. To do this interview with you. And, um, but I love this, right. Like, it, you know, I, it feels like I don't even care about that because I know this is part of what I'm doing and get my message out there. The energy comes, right. It's, it's the same, I guess, when you're doing these ultra marathons, it's like when you've got that backing behind you, the, the physical aspect or anything else, the mental thing, it doesn't matter. You're focused to really just make it happen. That's what an aspiration is. That, that, that's, it's beyond passion. It's beyond motivation. It's something that, you know, you, you really, and it's not a dozen things, Ethan, throughout your life. I, I want to make it very easy for you. You know, you can start with, the fun part is starting, who do you aspire to emulate? And, and that's, that's, that's the first step I take people through. So it could be a real person. It could be Elon Musk. It could be Donald Trump. It could be, I don't care. You, you pick the person. And it can be a fictional character. Like in my life, uh, to make it even funner for you, what you're doing the exercise, you know, when I was younger, I aspired to be uh, two fictional characters. I wanted to be Willy Wonka. I thought that what he did and the way that he, if you want to read the best marketing book ever written, read Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
I mean, that to me, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the name of the book. Uh, that is the best market. Look at the frenzy this guy created for his chocolate. And look at the, the elements he put into creating that frenzy. So when I saw that as a kid, I wanted to be him because I thought he was interesting and unique and you know eccentric. I've been able to play that role in my real estate grand unveilings for 20 years. I also aspired to be Robin Hood. I, I mean, in the woods of Indiana, I'd have my little bow and arrow, me and my friends with Barrett Band of Merry Men would go out into the woods and play Robin Hood. I get to be Robin Hood now because of the villages I built in Haiti. We built 27 self-sufficient villages in the poorest country of the Western Hemisphere, sheltering and caring for over 12,400 children. They were eating dirt flavored with bouillon and lemon juice. I get to play a modern day Robin Hood. I don't steal from the rich, I sell to them, but I take that money and I make. So that, that aspirational thought of, I aspire to emulate Robin Hood, Willy Wonka, you know, Evil Knievel was another person, he's a real person, but he could have been a fictional character who was a huge risk taker, he was a daredevil. I'm a little older than you. You should look him up, though. He's a really, he's a really cool character. All the, all the extreme sports were based upon what he did back in the, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Uh, that part is fun. And then once you – so you can sample little pieces of DNA from real or fictional characters. You're still you. You're not, you're not constructing a new person. But you take little pieces that you think really fire you up, you know, to get up after three and a half hours of sleep – and start to implement that into your your aspirational goal or endeavor. Yeah, now they're, they're really amazing points. And I love that you, you said it about a fictional thing as well. It's that, um, you know, I think our mind is so powerful that we can do whatever we want, right? We're, we're that powerful in our mind. So whether it's something that's real, something that's, um, you know, fictional, um, it doesn't matter, right? Because we can, you know, bullshit our brain so to speak on on believing things right we're, we're that powerful that if, if we think negative thoughts negative things happen right we think positive thoughts positive things happen in a simple sense but if you start to pick these things and say i want to um be like these people and take certain traits of them then the brain after a while catches up and yeah. goes, okay this is frank this is Ethan, and and really yeah just that it's true, but be, the, the, the part that will derail you, and more so now than when I was your age, is, is um, society's opinion of you implementing these things. Because of the, you know, since the advent of social media, the pressures to be a conformist uh, have never been greater. More and more people, especially young people, are saying, me, 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 look at me, I want to be an individual, but they're so conforming to what the definition of an individual is. I don't know if I was growing up, you know, starting over. How old are you? I'm 32. Okay, so let's say we were 25, like starting over 22 in my early 20s. Like, I, I don't, it would be harder for me, I think, to do, you know, to pretend like I was Evil Knievel or, or Robin Hood or something and to, to say, this is me. This, I really relate to that character. I'm, I'm going to absorb certain traits of that character. And there were real people, too. Mother Teresa I looked up to. I actually, before Trump got into politics, I sat in his office many a time in New York City. He endorsed uh, three of my prior six books. I liked him as a, as a real estate investor. Politics aside, forget the politics. I mean, there, there's real people, too. I, I thought that, you know, he, he, he branded real estate. He was the only branded real estate developer that I knew. So th those, that's cool. Like, don't worry about what society said. Look at how I'm dressed. I'm a businessman. I'm on a book tour in the presidential suite in a beautiful hotel in downtown Memphis. Massive room. I could take you around and show you. 
all because I, you know, I didn't let anyone outside of, of my sphere derail who I wanted to become. I could give a shit. I don't curse much. I could give a shit about what society says about who I should be, what color my hair should be, what dress I should wear, earring, what, no, 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 no. This, this is the real me. This isn't a show. This is the way I've been since I was in high school. And, and, and that freedom, Ethan, and, and, and Ethan's viewers, that freedom will allow the synapses of the brain to open up to all the potential, we're talking about business, business ideas, and for you to implement the things that you've absorbed into your character to set yourself apart, i.e. create your own reality. Do not let someone else, and especially what I referred to a while ago, the screens, create reality for you. Create your own. Yeah, I, I really love that, Frank. And, um, you know, with, with all of that, with creating it, and this is um, a lot of people say, is, you know, you, you're one-fifth of the five people you spend the most time with, right? And a lot of people like to stay comfortable. They've, you know, grown up with people through school or, or whatever like that. And, and they stick around these people. And, and then, you know, if you have this aspiration, you want to be something bigger than just having, you know, a standard job. You might've been, I don't know, at a supermarket or something when you were young. Right. And, and, you know, some people can stay like that for the rest of their lives, but other people may have aspirations. Like I want to go into bigger roles. I want to start my own businesses or, or whatever that is. Right. And, you know, if, if the people that you're hanging around do not have those same aspirations or they don't, um, you know, actively lift you up and, you know, uh, you know, want to make you, you know, say that you, you know, want you to succeed and, and everything like that. If they're the type of people, and this happens on social media as well, is that, that, you know, a lot of people are naysayers. They say, oh, you can't do that or that's too hard. Or, and, you know, if you buy into that, then, you know, you're killing your dream, basically. So you have to make it, you have to audit that and you have to make a choice saying, these people are not serving me to get me to my highest calling, to my aspiration. And, and that's really, um, you know, really important for people to understand. And that, that's uncomfortable, right? A lot of people don't want to give that up. Um, and, and I've had to, you know, it's not necessarily cutting people out of your life, but it's distancing certain people. And even, even like my parents, my parents were quite negative, right? My, when, when I went, went to move to Sydney, I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia, right? And my company wanted me to move to Sydney. My dad told me I wouldn't last six months in Sydney, literally, right? You'll be back in six months, right? And um, I, I just said, I'll prove you wrong, right? And I've proved him wrong today. And he tells me, um, you know, do you use that as fuel? I use things as fuel like that when people say I can't do things. But at the same time, you've got to think, okay, who do I distance myself from that has negative mindset that doesn't bring me up? And who do I need to hang around that I want to emulate maybe on the next steps up to there or, or to, you know, to really foster that growth? Yeah. So to be successful today, you have to be comfortable being alone. Uh, I, I have had to, I know what you're referring to as far as the, you know, the circle of friends that you kind of grew up with. Uh, I mean, I, I've been away from Indiana for 30 some year, 40, I mean, I'm not 40 years, but 30 some years. I still go home and I love my home. My mom still lives there and some of my, my I'm the oldest of six kids and I still see them, but some of my friends are still doing the same thing. That's cool. I, I Listen, there's only one judge, you know, and it's a good Lord. I don't judge you for wanting to work in the supermarket at all. But as you said, if you have bigger aspirations, uh, who you hang around with, if anybody at all, Ethan, there's a reason I work from a treehouse. People laugh at it. I've been, in, I've been working for my treehouse for almost 20 years. 
It's a beautiful treehouse, overlooks the ocean. It's too bad I'm not there. I take my computer and spin around and show you exactly my workspace. It's 220 square feet. It's got a, a bathroom, a sink, a shower, a toilet. It's got a king-size bed and a loft, all in 220 square feet, which is tiny. But I, I, I gave up my main office, and I let everybody who works for me work from home over 15 years ago, before it was kind of popular to work from home. Because I didn't want to be around the negativity or the, you know, the water cooler talk. I needed, again, to create my own reality. I hadn't written a book, Ethan, until I built my treehouse. I've now written six, now on my seventh, in six different genres. So, it's, as you said, you don't have to cut these people out of your life completely. I mean, there's a time that you can create for kind of reminiscing. And, and, you know, I don't drink, but you could go out and go have a drink with your friends and what have you. But, but if they begin to bring you down, if the mindset and the discussions begin to bring you down, all I'd say is shorten the amount of time you spend with them because there might be something cherished and sentimental about the friendship that you had back in high school or college or, you know, when you're in your 20s. Don't, don't blow that up just because you're Mr. Big Deal and you want to go out and set the world on fire. Be comfortable being alone, though. That's the challenge for people. They'd rather be with a group of people that don't take them anywhere than being alone and, and really studying and spending time meditating and, and, you know, like I do in my treehouse, writing my books and designing all the houses that, that you can see on my website. That's something that I, I enjoy. I have one daughter. She's the same way. She loves being alone. She doesn't mind being alone. Um, she's, you know, 22 years old. So yeah, watch who you're hanging with, watch how much time you're spending with who you're hanging with, but challenge yourself to be comfortable being alone. Yeah. Remember, there's a big difference between between being lonely and, and being in solitude. Big difference. Yeah, no, re really amazing points. And, and that's definitely something that I've um, come to terms with as well that I sort of say is I haven't found my tribe of five people yet, but it doesn't bother me because I know that, um, you know, I, I'm limiting, um, you know, what that is and I'm feeding myself in those times um, that I need to. And, and I've got an amazing partner that's, that's, you know, in business as well. And we, we feed each other. And then, you know, what other people we, we come across along, along the way um, helps to feed that as well. And I, I think that that really helps when you've got. Um, Don't worry, listen, I, I'm 25 years older than you. Do, do not worry about finding the five. I do not have five in my life. I have it at times, but right now I do not. And it's served me very well. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have, I have the ones that, that I really count on. I really count on like spiritual advisors now at this stage of my life more than business advisors. Um, you know, the spiritual advisors bring out the best in business in me when I spend time with them. So ha have, have at least one of those as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you are, a, you know, a spiritual person who sees life as, you know, having a higher calling. So, how has that shaped how you live life? I think it's really important for your guests to understand that, that most of, of the time spent on, on your show, I'm assuming, deals with what I refer to as your professional highest calling. I define that as simply something that you do a little bit better than most, not better than everybody, but a little, a little bit better than most that allows you to put food on the table and money in the bank. I mean, that's, that's, your prof that's your professional gift from God, your professional highest calling. And I spent the first, probably until I was, you know, almost your age, or even a little older, thinking that was all there was, a professional highest calling. Until when I was about your age, I, um, I was featured in another newspaper. I was on the cover. We just sold the most expensive spec house in the history of Palm Beach County at the time. 
and I was worried about what they wrote about me and, you know, did my hair look right? And, and what about the house in the background and the pictures, the rooms that they took? But on the other side of the page uh, was if, if back then we read newspapers, you know, real, real newspapers. And, and if I was reading a newspaper, you know, I'm reading this side of the column. But, but, but on this side of the column, there was a homeless man uh, being fed out of the back of a beat up old van. And I just, you know, he, I didn't have time for that. I was so focused. I mean, I actually took the paper, I folded it over so I wouldn't even look at this guy. And then I realized, wait a second, there but for the grace of God go I. This man, I mean, it, it, right the way I'm dressed, if I had a less nice shirt, I could look like a homeless person real easy. Why did I end up on the right side of the page, Ethan? Why was I featured on this side of the page with my hands raised in triumph after a sale of a $15 million house on the ocean? When, when not long ago, I, I was leaving my fourth high school in four years and my seventh stint in juvenile detention. W what right turns did I take, literally, to put me on the right side of the page? And what wrong turns could I have taken or, or did this gentleman take that lend, landed him on the left side of the page? It was a feature about a man being fed, again, out from underneath the overpass, like he was living under the bridge. But he looked like me. He looked exactly like me. If I didn't put a flat iron in my hair and go to the hairdresser every other month, that could have been me. And so that opened up the portal of the, my mind to say, I need to real, I need to find out. I need to learn why I feel like shit. I didn't feel good about myself then. I was on top of the world. I mean, my success was through the roof. I had everything I wanted. Money will buy you two things in excess, relief and comfort, relief and comfort. I had all the relief and comfort I could count on, but happiness eluded me. So I started volunteering at that soup kitchen and serving meals to the homeless one night a week for one hour. That's all I did. And I wrote a spiritual book called The Tap, which you look it up. It's just The Tap. You can see it on my website. You can read sample chapters. And it, it's, it's a book that teaches you how to recognize life's great tap moments. When God comes down and taps you on the shoulder, calls you to more, more than what you've been doing now, more than just looking to make money through the business growth show, more spiritual, a deeper spiritual awareness. I acted on that tap moment, Nathan, that, that was in that newspaper. Had I just folded it over and focused on me, I wouldn't have built 27 self-sufficient villages in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So finding that spiritual highest calling allows one to kind of skip over happiness and land on joy. I'm not talking about every single day as Frank joyous, but knowing that there's purpose behind building these beautiful big mansions, when we sell them, we take a portion of the proceeds. I also have a bunch of donors. We have a huge nonprofit called the Caring House project foundation chpf.org go take a look at all the villages we built i'm a simpleton right i graduated high school with a 1.8 gpa and like you never pursued any formal education so with a lin as a linear thinker i'm in the housing business i provide housing to the ultra wealthy people who don't need another house they have plenty of them well then back when I read that article, I now provide housing to the world's most desperately poor and homeless, primarily the children that are eating the dirt, you know, flavored with bouillon and lemon juice in Haiti. That's the dovetailing, the putting together of your professional and your spiritual highest calling. And I implore you to read my book, The Tap. The new book that's coming out will have a section that's all about your spiritual highest calling uh, because there's more of a mindset book. 
that's, that's how important spirituality, if you want to call it, has been for me. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. And I'll definitely um, be checking out the tap and, and, and especially your recent um, new book that's coming out soon as well on that. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And it was interesting because I was sort of getting into it as I was starting my business is understanding a bit about spirituality. And then my partner, when I met her, um, was a lot more down the track in that way. So she's opened up my eyes um, a lot more to that area. And, um, you know, I've, there's a lot of key aspects there, but it's really about, you know, trusting your intuition, trusting your gut is a very spiritual thing, right? About the messages and the things that you get. Um, you know, this is not about religion, obviously. This is about the higher calling, right? To what um, comes down with, you know, whatever you believe is, is, you know, how you get messages, how you ask for things. That's the way I sort of look at it and, and understanding what messages come down. And I was at a meditation event and I, um, you know, basically was put through a guided meditation and it's a longer story. I could, I could talk about it for a little while, but I'll just go to the, the key point here is that a lady, um, you know, me and my partner met at this event, didn't know each other. And we went through a guided meditation. She said, I want you to think about the biggest thing holding you back, like your biggest limiting belief. And I just went to a big personal development event and I got rid of a lot of limiting beliefs just before that. Right. So I had to rack my brain for a bit. Then I thought to myself, I've always made an excuse about a girlfriend. I was single for 10 years before that. And I had a couple of girlfriends when I was young, you know, I made excuses. I'm going overseas here. I got my business. I'm too busy, all these things. Right. And then she goes, I want you to flip it. Like you got it in the best possible way. So I started doing a checklist in my head of, you know, all the key things that I wanted. And I was going very detailed, right. On, on that being very specific, um, on exactly what I wanted in my perfect woman. And, you know, long story short, um, at the end, we say this same word in the thing. And then I started chatting to her. And as we're chatting, every single thing that I asked for was coming out in the conversation. So I literally manifested my partner on the spot, my Furby partner at that event. And it's been two and a half years since then. And it's been amazing. And, um, you know, we're very connected. And, and I think that's, you know, I'm not trying to impress everybody here, but I'm just saying is we're powerful once we connect to that with those answers and we have clarity in what we're asking for that we can, you know, manifest and get that in our lives. Yeah. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. Now I am very a religious person, you know, spiritual and I will go as I'll go beyond that to say I'm a, I'm a very religious person. And I, the God that I worship, which is the God that, you know, most people worship is, um, is a very generous God. And, and, and he, he wants to give you exactly what you ask for in that guided meditation. I'm not going to, you know, profess on or you know pound on a bible or you know get onto the the, the spiritual passages the bible passage which i'm pretty i've read the bible many times cover to cover but you know tapping into that those gifts that that i believe god wants to give us because in my book the tap i talk about how to be a responsible steward for the gifts that you already have when you're a responsible steward for the gifts that you already have your territory tends to increase. In other words, God wants to reward you with greater gifts because you are, <coughs> excuse me, are already a responsible steward for the gifts that he's given to you to that point. And so for you to have pretty many things in your life, line up, doing really well, having that one thing missing, you're, as you said, manifesting it and you, you got it and you've had it for two and a half years. That's how generous I feel our God is. Yeah, I love that. And, and it's true. We're all here, um, you know, to get the things that we want in life. Um, and as long as we don't have 
anything that holds us back. And, and I think um, is, is having that connection, but also understanding what are the things that are holding us back. And this is where a lot of limiting beliefs can come into it from, you know, as we've grown up, unfortunately, our parents and things, um, you know, tell us these things. Like I know I had to re-script, for example, my dad always used to say money is the root of all evil. I reckon I heard that hundreds of times, at least growing up. Um, and I had to re-script myself on that. And once I realized that and re-script myself, money started flowing, right? Um, there's a lot of th little things like that, that we get told. So it's about, I think, one step is understanding that aspect of what are these stories or things that we've got ingrained and, and flipping those into to empowering things. And then having the clarity on, on focusing on what we want and asking for it. And then, you know, really, really getting that as well. Yeah. And I, I challenge your, your guests to also take that to the next level and, and really um, pursuing these type of things for not just yourself. Uh, you know, there's a, there is a, a great life mantra that happens to be a Bible passage. And if you're religious, it's a great life. It's a great Bible passage that happens to be a, a wonderful life mantra. To whom much is entrusted, much is required. Read Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 48. To whom much is given, much is required. So at 32, you've been given a lot. You have an influence. You have a program. You have a business. You have a partner. You have a following. You've been entrusted with a lot, and you're going to continue to be entrusted with a lot. Therefore, much is required of you, Ethan. And, and for those of you who are a guest of his program right now, much is required of you too. So what, how, how responsible are you being with the gifts that you've been given? I realized from my mentors many years ago uh, that that was, a, that was the next step to bringing me to a, a level in life that I could have never contemplated. If you go and follow me on social media, and Instagram is just the Frank McKinney, just the Frank McKinney and, and Facebook, just look up Frank McKinney. Uh, you'll see that many of my posts are, you know, there's one I put up on Sunday, very spiritually related. It, it talks about um, another passage favorite of mine, Hebrews 13, 2, that says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. That chapter is actually going into my book. and I'm asking people to share your, your Hebrews 13, 2 story. Like, when have you shown hospitality to a stranger? And I implore you to, to pay attention to the invisible, to the forgotten, to the homeless, to the poor, to the downtrodden. How you treat them will be given back to you tenfold in the world that you live in. So when that maid comes through the door tomorrow to make up my room, I will make her feel, assuming it's a woman, make her feel like the most important person in the world. She will be asked who she is by name. She will be told that this is the most beautiful room I've ever stayed in and the most clean. She will be given a handwritten note on their stationery telling her what a beautiful job she did, and she'll be given some money. Something as simple as that could turn around a very simple life. When you get to realize you have that, that responsibility, that stewardship, man, does that territory grow. And there's no way with my head hitting the pillow, you know, in that juvenile detention hall many, many years ago, could I have ever imagined I would have cared about the poor, the downtrodden, the, the, the homeless, the sick, the indigent, the invisible, like I do now. And the one thing I'm so thankful for, really, as I, as I lay down and, and say my prayers at night, is that I have that awareness. That, that, that I, I go out of my way when I leave this interview. I actually have one uh, 15 minutes after we hang up. But when I'm done with that, I'm hitting the streets of Memphis. I will find homeless people. I'll strike up a conversation, not just give them money, but I want to ask them how they are. You know, what got them to their situation and maybe give them one of my books. 
and, and move on. That is a, that's a great day for me. Yeah, that, that's amazing, Frank. And, and I think awareness is the key word there of everything. And, and, and I, you know, do similar things. I probably don't go to the full extent of the note, which is amazing. I love the, the, the extra details that you give. But when, when I naturally see people, my partner always says this to me. It's like, when I see people somewhere, I always strike up a conversation. I'm, I make their day feel good. Like when you go and get a coffee or you go down the road somewhere, like brighten up their day. Um, a lot of people don't take the time to just ask them a question or two. Um, and, and that really, you know, that creates a ripple effect that, you know, makes them brighter and that helps the other people, you know, everything like that. And, and like you said, um, you know, giving back. So that's one way of giving back or it's even, um, you know, maybe there's, certain events or, or certain other things that you do and you can help out, you know, as, as a crew member or something where you're just giving back your time. I think time, as you know, is one of the most precious resources, whether or not, it's, you know, it's for charity or whether or not it's just helping people out. And then the universe has a way of giving back to us and saying, this person's a giver. We need, we, we need to give back more to him as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's biblical time, talent, and treasure. You know, if you don't have the treasure uh, and you may not have the talent yet, but you do have one of the greatest sources of wealth and that is time that is another form of wealth which is time uh share that with those less fortunate i mean share it with everybody but I, I think there's a calling to share it with those who who really need it yeah awesome uh, you know so you're a six times international best-selling author with seven book coming in 2021 you know you're currently in in memphis tennessee on your 20th stop on the you know you go we go tour in support of you know, pre-launch of your seventh book which is amazing so let everyone know, you know, a bit more about the new book, but also about, you know, your passion um, for being an author as well. Yeah, so I have these six books uh, in order. The first book was called Make It Big, which is more of a philosophical book. Still the best-selling book that I, I put out there. It was ahead of its time. It's 49 chapters, but it's only six or seven pages per chapter. So when I say ahead of its time, it, um, attention spans are so short right now. Like we really don't have time to read 400 page books or we do have time. We just don't want to take it. So make it big was a philosophical book. Then my publisher said, said, that's great, Frank. It sold well, but you're not a philosopher. Why don't you write what you really know, which is real estate. So I wrote a book called Frank McKinney's Maverick approach to real estate success, how to go from a $50,000 fixer upper to a $50 million mansion. That did well. Then I said, you know, I want to change genres again. I wrote a young reader fantasy novel that was based on the fact that I walked my daughter to school every single day from pre-K to, to uh, eighth grade. 1,652 times I walked my daughter to school. She never sat in the back seat of a car for 10 years to go to school. I physically walked her the one mile to school, but I turned that into a, a fantasy novel. Uh, then I wrote a, uh, the tap book, which is my spiritual book. To whom much is entrusted, much is required, based upon that whole philosophy of being a responsible steward. Then I moved back into real estate, make it big, uh, 49 secrets, or make it big, I'm sorry, burst this, Frank McKinney's bubble-proof real estate strategy. So it's really everything I know in real estate is in my book, Burst This. And then I wrote, my last book was a Christian romance novel uh, titled The Other Thief. And this one will be a mindset book, because it's time that I share my mindset. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. You've got such a diverse um, knowledge base there. And, um, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And I definitely implore everybody to look at all of those books or, you know, at least initially the ones that really resonate with them a lot. Um, so that's really amazing. And, you know, we, we met at Mega Success where I, I thoroughly enjoyed your insights. Your creativity creates opportunities in markets where most others can't see them. You know, you have a heart of gold and always aim to give more than you receive. Um, you know, I'm very grateful that we connected and I look forward um, to working with you in the future as well. 
Thank you, Eighth. That's really nice of you to say. And, and for your guests, you know, to, to, to see more, um, my website's been calls, called a, a Disney on a computer or on an iPhone. If you go to frank-mckinney.com or just follow me on, on social, but frank-mckinney.com, you can tour the villages we built in Haiti. You can read sample chapters of my book. You can see, books, you can see these beautiful houses I've built or where, when they open up the world again, where I'll be speaking. So visit that. But I got to thank you. You know, I, I hope I, as a guest on Ethan's Business Growth Show, uh, you, have a, you have a tremendous asset here in Ethan giving him, giving you his time. Uh, I've been on thousands of programs before. This young man uh, is enlightened. So listen to what he has to say and follow him and, and his books. Do you have a book out? Not yet. I've got a little ebook that I do have at the moment on mindset on business, actually, funnily enough. Um, so, yeah. Good. Well, you need to follow whatever Ethan puts out there. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's very enlightened. That's a word that comes to mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, you know, I'm sure many people have greatly benefited from your valuable wisdom. And, and thank you, everyone, for watching and listening to this show where we talk about everything on business growth. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram as Ethan Cassiotis or visit my website, ethancassiotis.com. I completely agree with you, or do I? The only way we know is if you tune in next time. So until next time, remember that our business grows when we learn skills and take action using them in spite of fear. Have a great day.